There were seven of us in the car. It was a van. We were about 8,000 feet up in the Himalayan mountains. The road was a dangerous road. No uh, railings or wall along the side at all. It was a very windy road. We were traveling for about four or five hours back into the recesses of the Himalayan mountains. In the car was Lucky, the driver. That's a good name for a driver when he's driving you on roads like that. And uh, I was in that car. There was also an Indian friend of mine, Seema. Seema is the only believer from her people group, the Garwali people. And she wanted us to go back and see the need in large swaths of the mountains. Along with us also were Ben and Katie Robertson and their two little kids, Jack and Claire. Jack is three, Claire is one. Ben and Katie are from Memphis, Tennessee. And he's one of those really cool, cool guys, you know, right about 30 years old, wears one of those cool hats, has a scruffy kind of a beard. And when I said to him, Ben, I want to take you guys back in this area, he said, Beth, Katie and I aren't ever going to live in remote places like that. this. He said, our call is to the cities. We are moving to Mumbai. We're going to open a CrossFit gym and make that the business platform for building relationships so that people can come to know Jesus. He said, I'm never going to live back like this. And I said, I know that, Ben. But I said, I also know that many of the young people that you're going to be interacting with have grandpas and grandmas and daddies and dadas and nannies and nanas, uncles and aunties, parents who come from villages like this. And if you have the perspective of having seen such a place, it's going to make you much more valuable as you interact with these young people. Now, I'd, I'd warned Katie. Katie's one of those cute little American girls, you know, skinny jeans and T-shirts, and she looks like she's about 14, but she's a mother of two. And I had warned Katie, Katie, there's no hospital back where we're going, and there's no grocery store, so you, we better take everything you think you're going to need. And... Um, by the way, there's no internet back there, and there's no phone coverage. Now, you guys know there's no way we can uh, get along in life without all of our um, things that we, buttons we push with our finger. Our life is like that. But I'd warned them. So we headed way back into this mountain area, traveling along. And of course, little Claire, we were only about an hour down the road and going one hairpin curve after another. And suddenly Claire just, just threw up all over in the car and we're like, oh man. So we had to stop and clean the whole thing up and open up all the windows because the smell was pretty bad. But we kept traveling on back there with Seema. We arrived, came around the edge of this mountain and arrived to overlooking her home, and the Thedi Dam, which I understand is probably the largest dam in the world. We could see the waters of the dam down the mountains from there. 
And here's Seema's little family home where her father and mother live. Also, she has two brothers who live there. I had warned Ben and Katie. I said, I think there are maybe two bedrooms, and I'm not sure. I may be sharing a bed with you guys tonight. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen. But, um, and Ben, he's like, Beth, we know you're our team leader, but we didn't know that when you're on your team, you get to sleep like this in the same bed with the team leader and all your kids along with you too. But we arrived there and found out they'd made the arrangements for us. They gave Ben and Katie and the kids their own room. Seema went into a room with her mom and dad and her two brothers. And there was a little puja room. It's the room where they do their Hindu worship. And it was about the size of a larger closet. And Seema's father, he's a high caste Hindu and he had all his gods and spread out there on a little table. He had his incense. He had bowls where he gave uh, milk and flowers as gifts multiple times a day. He was there praying to his gods. And then in the little tiny kitchen area, there was a bench. And I found out that bench was my bed. My bones didn't appreciate that bench too much, but... I was glad to have a little space of my own. As the sun went down over the Himalayas, Seema stood at the edge of a little flat area in front of her parents' home. Her dad had built a fire to keep us warm, and we had been sitting around the fire. I had asked Lucky, who was also from a similar tribal group, I said, Lucky, you understand Seema's father's language? And Lucky said, no, no, auntie. He said, my home is 20 kilometers down the road here. He said, I don't understand this language. I said, how can that be? 20 kilometers is not very far. You know, how can it be that you don't understand the language? And Seema's father explained to me that every 10 kilometers through the mountains, the language and the culture changed. And I was like, Jesus, this is impossible. What are we thinking? I stood out in that open area right on the edge with Seema, looking out and watching lights come out on in distant, distant villages. We probably could see the lights of 20 villages higher and further out into the Himalayan region. And Seema said to me, Auntie, no one has ever gone to that village and preached about Jesus. Nobody has ever gone to that village. We know one little boy from that village who knows Jesus. And I was overwhelmed with the need. I was also overwhelmed with my own selfishness. That 2,000 years after Jesus died and resurrected, and went to heaven, and God sent the Holy Spirit to be in us, to empower us to reach the world. 2,000 years after that, that over half the world still has not heard that Jesus is the Savior. I thought, how is it possible that I live in a country of 1.3 billion people, that the Apostle Thomas brought the gospel to this country 2,000 years ago, actually to the state that is the home area of your pastor and his wife. 2,000 years ago, 
the Apostle Thomas, took that cup from Jesus sitting around the table at the Last Supper, and he said, I will take the truth of this to the ends of the earth. And he ended up in India. And 2,000 years later, there are still villages where people have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. I was overwhelmed by that. I was overwhelmed by my own selfishness and self-centeredness in thinking, Lord, this is the reason. This is the reason. We, we are too, I am too full of myself and my own needs and my own desires that I have not been willing to go with God's heart and God's need that the scripture that Smita, Smita right, read for us this morning, that around that throne there are going to be people from every tribe and nation and tongue. How can it be? Seema told me, pointed to a building way down the mountain, and she said, that's where I went to elementary and high school. And she said, at that time, my father was building this house, and it's made of these big boulders. And she said, every day when my sister and my two brothers and I would go to school, my dad would say, on your way back up the mountain, put two rocks on your head and carry them back up because we need to build the house. So she said this house was built much by rocks that my sister and brothers carried back up. That night, as we were settling down to sleep, the last thing I heard were mountain dogs barking and Seema's father praying the mantras and crying out to the gods that he served for blessings upon his family. I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, dawn comes before the sun is up. 4 o'clock in the morning, the sky had begun to lighten out over the far mountains. And I woke up with a start, and my first thought was, Jesus, this is impossible. I lead a team called I-Team, Incarnation Team. Our team concentrates on four things. Learning to live in Jesus because unless we abide in him, we will not bear fruit. Learning to live in team, sharing our lives and our resources with each other. Learning to live in India, making the cultural adaptations we need to. And learning to live in Hindi, which is the language spoken by the majority of Indians who have not yet heard about Jesus. So I lead this team. And this team is the training team for what we call Live Dead India. We're learning that if we don't die to ourselves and our own desires and our own plans, then the life of Jesus will never be shared to the ends of the earth. But if we die... If we die, then we can be implanted into places where we will bear fruit for the sake of the glory and the fame of Jesus' name. And so this young team that I lead, and then I put people on other teams. We've started 10 teams across North India that are teams that go in on business platforms because we can't be in India on missionary visas anymore. 
Um, we have to be there as business people, as students. Some people go in as tourists, although we're trying to get away from that and stick more with the letter of the law. But we go in business platforms of cafes and coffee shops and tea, tea houses and um, creative arts centers and CrossFit gym centers. When I was 65 years old, I started taking CrossFit, not because I thought it was an important thing for me to learn at that age, but because I had a group of girls who were trained in CrossFit and didn't have anybody to train and were wanting to start a center. So I said, if you can train me, you can train anybody. So we start business centers. And so these young people are being sent into places across India. I woke up that morning saying, Jesus, it's impossible. There's no way every 10 kilometers, the language and the culture changing, over 2,300 unreached people groups in India, more than any other nation in the world. In fact, more than the next 10 nations combined. 1.3 billion people, 65% of them under 35 years of age. The median age in India is 27.6. So we have this young nation of people living in the middle of a crucible of change and wondering who they are in the world today. Young people who are running around in blue jeans and t-shirts, who work in call centers and multinational organizations. There are more people who speak English in India than in the whole United States, by the way. So these vibrant, talented, educated young Indians and yet they live in the middle of something that is almost like an archaeological dig. It's like every layer of, and you're laughing because you understand this, every layer of culture, years and years of culture that inform the life of these young people who live on the surface, who listen to Coldplay, Radiohead, and Arcade Fire. They know all the music that young people here in America know. And yet, they are, their lives are held and informed in many ways by parents and grandparents. Many of them don't follow the religions of their parents. They would never say, I pray to that God and I believe that God will answer me. But they respect and honor their parents and the culture of their country. So they would never think about stepping away from that place. And here we're training young people and older people as well because all of our teams are multinational and multi-generational. We're multinational because we have Indians who serve on all our teams. We have our first Indian leader for a Live Dead team in Mumbai. That's who Ben and Katie serve under. And they have a CrossFit gym they are opening. I think they maybe opened two weeks ago. And they are seeing young Indians' lives be impacted by the gospel through their lives in that place. So Indians are a part of all of our teams. We know that our single greatest wealth in India is the Indian church. 
If you draw a line from Mumbai to Calcutta, 80% of the believers are below that line, down where the Apostle Thomas took the gospel to Kerala and then across to Chennai, to Tamil Nadu. Those two states have the bulk of believers in India. But if you go north of that place, there are villages and villages and towns. And by the way, in India, we call a place a town if it has a million and a half people. I don't know what the population of Quincy is. Do you know? Yeah? 900,000? 90,000? Okay, well, 90,000 is a village in India. Um, the apartment complex that I used to live in in Calcutta, we had 10,000 people who lived in my apartment complex alone. So masses, masses of people. And the majority of them in that northern part of India, the Indian churches partnering together with us, Pastor D. Mohan, who's the superintendent of all India, he believes in going to the edges and the frontiers, and he's encouraging us. In every Bible school in India, we are talking about live dead teams. We're talking about doing this thing together because no single ethnic group is great enough and strong enough and smart enough to do the work of the kingdom. We have to do it together. This morning when I stepped into this place, I felt like, Jesus, I am in heaven. I have stepped into heaven. This is so great. I just love this. I love this. This is the way we want it to be. So we do this thing together. So as the sun came up over the mountain that morning, and I woke up saying, it's impossible, it's impossible. How could young couples like Ben and Katie, how could they ever live in extreme and remote places like this? How could guys like Ben ever get along without a cell phone? How could they ever get along without Facebook? Jesus, it's impossible. And just at that moment, my phone made a little noise, ding, like an email came in. And I'm like, no, it can't be. Must be like an alarm I put on my phone and I forgot to turn it off last night. Because like all you guys, I set my phone on the table beside my bed when I go to sleep, you know. And that's one of the first things I grab in the morning, although I'm working on not doing that. So suddenly the phone rings. I mean, the phone dings. The phone dings, and there's an email on the phone. It's come from Seekonk, Massachusetts, from a guy I haven't heard from in quite a few years. Five and a half years ago, my husband died um, right after we had agreed that we would launch the first base camp for Live Dead India. Uh, a week after Dale died, I sat with Omar Byler, who is the Eurasia director for Assemblies of God World Missions, and with Bob and Twyla McGurdy, who at that time were the area directors for India. I sat with them, and Omar said, Beth, we want to know if you'll be willing to open the base camp. And I just said, Bob, Omar, I am half a woman, half a head, half a heart. 
I don't think I can go anywhere and start anything. And Bob said, Beth, we're just asking if you'll pray about it. And I said, I'm not even sure I know how to pray and hear anything from Jesus. Dale and I have confirmed God's voice to each other for over 43 years of marriage. I don't know if I can hear from the Holy Spirit outside of Dale. And Bob said, I'm just asking if you'll pray. And I finally agreed. And a number of weeks went by, and I remember one day saying to my oldest son, Tim, Tim, I just, I just don't think I can hear from Jesus anymore. And he just looked at me. He's kind of one of those kamikaze guys, and he's actually living in Djibouti right now, leading a live-dead team working among Somalians. And he turned to me in that moment, and he said, Mom, I guess you're just going to have to learn how. And I got out of the car, and I slammed the door, and I said, You go hear from Jesus if you want. I don't think I can hear from him anymore. But a few weeks later, I was just saying, Jesus, if you have anything at all to say to me on this subject, now would be an awfully good time for you to say it. And one line went through my head. And you can read the story of this in, in this book, The Common Table, that you can get after service if you'd like. But one line went through my head. You didn't say yes to your husband. You said yes to me. So I called Bob and Omar that day and I said, okay, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go plant this training team. So it had been a number of years. The last time I had heard from this guy in Seekonk, Massachusetts, had been a letter when he wrote saying he was so sorry to hear of Dale's death. And I hadn't heard from him since that day. And suddenly the phone makes this noise. And this email is there. And I want to read the email to you. Because it's fascinating. Beth, I saw this devotional written about your mother. And I thought you'd appreciate reading it. My mom and dad went to India as missionaries in 1946. I was born in India. This is what the email said, or the devotional about my mom. Supplies were low and money was scarce in December of 1950 when a package arrived from the States that included a new record album and a pound of coffee. The Hawkses had no electricity or running water. She anxiously heated water in a saucepan on the portable Coleman stove for a makeshift coffee pot. After opening the album, Olive loaded their Victrola to play a newer song that was very popular in the States at the time. It was called, He Giveth More Grace. She manually played the record by turning a crank on the Victrola and she began to listen to the words of the song. However, in the providence of God, the record had a scratch on it, and it skipped at the refrain in which the song says, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. And some of you with white hair sitting here will remember that song. Olive knew deep in her heart that God wanted her to be reminded of the truth of our generous God over 
and over and over again. This experience filled her with great assurance and supplied deep abiding joy to her heart at a time when circumstances were bleak and uncertain. One of the verses of that song says, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. I needed my mother's voice that morning. My mother went to be with the Lord two years ago. I needed the words of that grace-filled song. I needed to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is everywhere and that his grace and love and power has no limit at all. I need to be reminded that we can live dead because of the one who died that all might live. I'm reminded of a great line in the movie The Gladiator, and I hope nobody's offended if I reference a movie this morning. But that movie, The Gladiator, you know that great scene right at the beginning, the battle scene. Some of you guys are grinning at me. You like that movie, I know. And you're saying an old lady like that shouldn't like that kind of movie. That's what you're saying. But here's this uh, great scene. And the Germanic tribes are lined up on one side and they're screaming and yelling. And, and the Roman army is over here. And the Romans have already sent an emissary over to the Germanic tribes telling them probably we're going to take you out if you don't surrender. I don't know what they said with that. But the, they, the Germanic tribes send back this decapitated guy on the horse back to them. There aren't any children in here, are there, that I'm going to terrify this is not supposed to be an X-rated service this morning. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, sorry, guys. But here's, the, here's the, the Romans on this side, and they're all lined up in order. You have the guys at the bottom. They're the ones with the swords, and then you have the spears, and you have the bows and arrows, and then you have the guys who are the flamethrowers and the rock throwers, you know. And, and uh, what's the name of the guy who's in that movie? Yes, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe comes galloping through there on his big black horse. And he's got a few guys with him. And he takes them up behind this Germanic crew, this whole army that's over there. He takes them up there. And he says something to them in that moment that is so impactful for us today. He says to them, what you do in life echoes in eternity. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Those of us who sit here in this place today, many of us have a strong sense of God's destiny in our lives. That God brought us to this place. It had nothing to do with the American government giving us a visa or a card or whatever they gave us. But God brought us to this place at this time for his purpose and his will in our lives. We are people of destiny. I have such a sense of destiny in my life that this little baby born in the mountains of India, the year that India was born, my husband and I served in India and Bangladesh for many years together. Our youngest son 
was born in a jungle hospital in Bangladesh. And yet at this moment in my life, with all of the experiences that God has given me, with experiences of the faithfulness and the goodness and the grace of Jesus and Jesus' ability in impossible situations, with all of that, and now a husband who's in heaven, who had the great good sense to say yes to Jesus, to this new endeavor that I walked into not knowing that I was going to be the one who had to fulfill the promise that Dale made. I know that I am a woman of destiny. My heart is an Indian heart. My heart beats for India and the millions and millions and millions who have never heard the name of Jesus. There's a great story in the Old Testament that I just want to reference as I close this morning. It's a story of destiny. It's the story of Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34. And many of you know that story. Josiah became king at eight years of age. And in 2 Chronicles 34, it says Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the, his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, ashtrap poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the ashtrap poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on the altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. One of the fascinating things about Josiah is Josiah had a lousy father. His father was a man who worshipped idols. His father was killed by one of his own officials because he was such a bad king. And his grandfather was also a bad king. But Josiah, at eight years of age, decides he's going to find a role model that he can follow. A role model who will teach him the right way. Many of us sit here in this room today and we don't have role models just behind us, our parents or grandparents, who were godly people who loved and served Jesus and prayed for us. But Josiah didn't either. And he said, I'm going to take David as my role model. And it says he decides that he is going to follow in the ways of his father David. David was like his great, 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 great grandfather. And it says he doesn't turn to the left or the right. In the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 years old at this time. While he's still young, it says he begins to seek the God of his father David. It wasn't enough for him to see the road that David had marked out before him. This is the way to be a good king. He had to know the God who was behind that thing. And I want to tell you today that if you will take care of the depth of your life, by surrounding yourself with godly people, 
reading books that challenge you to follow and serve Jesus. Be in small groups in this church where people pray together and seek the face of Jesus. If you will be faithful to sit in this place Sunday after Sunday, not just sit here, but then walk out and be a witness in your community. Set a table, a common table, and invite people to that table. Because this bread and this cup is the bread for the world, the cup for the world. If you will do that, if you will take care of the depth of your life, God will take care of the breadth of your influence. And you will never know the breadth of that until you're in heaven and get to see what it is. So at 16, he says, I want to know the God of David. And then in his 12th year, he's 20 years old. And at that time, he takes on the idols of his generation. God calls all of us to come face to face with the idolatry of our own generation. Every generation that's born, we have to say, what is it that Americans and my neighbors and my friends, my classmates at school, what is it that rules their life and runs their life? What do they spend their money and their time and their energy on? We have to confront those things. Josiah confronted them first in his own life. And then God gave him the grace and the strength to confront the idolatry of his generation. But the wonderful, amazing thing about this story is... I was reading through 1 Kings, and you know some of those Old Testament books are such a drag to read through, you know, but I was reading one day, 1 Kings 13, and I came across this little, weird little story, and this is what it says. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. And this is the sign that God has declared. The altar will be split apart and ashes, the ashes on it will be poured out. God gave a word of prophecy to an unnamed man. They never, the Bible doesn't tell us who he is. He steps out of this crowd and he speaks to something that is going to happen 350 years in the future. Many of us have had prophetic words spoken over us in our life. Some of them you know and some of the words maybe you don't even know that people prayed for you and spoke words of life over you. Maybe while you were in your mother's womb. My husband Dale had some great one-liners he would use. Uh, he was a man of deep wisdom. We are the parents of three children, all married, and ten grandchildren. So um, 
Yeah. But Dale had this one line he used to say when somebody would come to him all excited about a prophecy they'd been given. And he'd say, God gives you the word, and then he gets to make you the man that that word can come true to. Because none of us are in the place where God wants us to be. He's always making us deeper, wider individuals, more in love with Jesus, more given to his heart for this world. And so God made Josiah the man, and that prophetic word came true to him. We sit here in this room today, people of destiny. God's hand is on your life. He has put you in the neighborhood where you are. He has hand-picked the neighbors who live on each side of you. I always say that the worst part of America is the garage door opener. We drive up to our house, we hit that button, we drive in, we hit the button, it closes behind us, and we don't even have to say hello to the people who live on each side of us. God, help us to be people who open our lives to others so that they can see the life of Jesus in, in us. God, put you in that job with that guy or gal who's sitting next to you, working next to you. God puts you in that school, in that university. He puts you in that professor, that godless professor's class, so that there can be a light of the gospel in that class. We are people of destiny, and no less destiny than Josiah's destiny. We are people called to make known the glory of God and take on the idolatry of our generation. God, help us to be those people in the world today. God, help us to together be the people who are sending missionaries around the world to every country and state and town and village. You saw in the video thousands and thousands of villages where the name of Jesus in India has never been spoken. I want to invite you this morning to open your heart and listen to what the Lord is speaking to you. What is he saying to you about your destiny and your future? What things has he sown into your life that have made you the woman or a man that you are today? Because he wants to do something powerfully wonderful through your life for the glory of his name. Let's be people who give ourselves to him. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we are yours. We are yours. We want to be people given to your great dream, the big dream of God that the gospel would be preached to the farthest corners of the world. And so we sit here today, a mixture of people from many nations and tongues, languages, people groups. We're here today called of your name with the stamp of your love and your grace upon our lives. We call you Savior because you save us every day 
from ourselves and our selfishness and our self-centeredness. You save us to make us what you want us to be today. And we are so grateful. In your name, Lord Jesus, I bless this congregation and their leaders, their pastor and his wife and family. Jesus, that this place would continue to stand as a trophy to your goodness and your power and your ability to help us to love each other across all the boundaries that this world tries to put in our way. We will be your people, Jesus, and we will do it for the fame of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name.